If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. We're studying Acts to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus into the world. Uh, and, and last week, it really didn't look all that good. If you, were, uh, if you weren't here, we saw Paul and Silas uh, go to the city of Philippi. And what began initially with good work, with people coming to know Jesus... Uh, In the midst of their ministry, Paul casts a demon out of a slave girl uh, who is being used by her masters for fortune-telling. And, of course, when she lost her evil spirit, uh, she no longer was good for her master. She no longer gained them any money, and that made them very angry. And so they stirred up uh, a riot and accused Paul and Silas of disturbing the peace, which got them stripped, beaten, thrown in jail, and shackled in the stocks. But God used it. God opened the doors of the prison, and the jailer himself comes to know Jesus. So we saw that even in the midst of the darkness, God is at work. And so that's the the beginning of the church in Philippi. Today, uh, we're going to follow Paul and Silas about 100 miles west to the city of Thessalonica. So we can put that map up on the screen if you can see it. Uh, Philippi is in the the top left corner um, in the region there of Macedonia, and you can follow that red line over to the city of Thessalonica. Uh, That's where we're going to start, and then we're also going to jump over and read uh, Acts 19, verses 18 through 41, so you want to keep your finger there, uh, because there's a similarity between what happens uh, in these two passages. So let's, uh, let's give our attention to God's word. Starting in Acts 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them... They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now I want you to flip over to Acts 19. We're going to start reading in verse 18. Uh, This episode happens in the city of Ephesus, uh, which is back across the Aegean Sea. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having been sent and having sent into Macedonia, two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, the way is what they called this early Christian movement. Jesus said himself in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so those who followed Jesus were called the way. There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Because a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. What a telling commentary on mobs. Most of them didn't even know why they had come together. They were just angry about something. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help and understanding in applying it. Lord, there are a lot of, uh, of words here, a lot of verses, and yet we see a, a theme emerging. And so, God, we pray that you would take these words of yours 
and that you would apply them to our hearts, Lord, so that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. January 1st, 404 AD, that is the official date of the last gladiatorial games, when the gladiatorial games were banned in the Roman Empire. Uh, If you're not familiar with these contests, uh, they were very much a part of Roman pop culture, Roman life uh, for Centuries, uh, thousands of people would gather in stadiums to watch gladiators who really uh, had kind of trained from birth to be in peak physical condition. People would gather and uh, they would watch these men butcher one another, slaughter one another to the uh, fight to the death. Uh, Sand was spread over the wooden floor of the stadium to absorb the blood. This was big business. It was big entertainment. Um, it, uh, it was as much a, a way that the NFL uh, is big business today. But as history tells us, all of that came to a halt because of a monk named Telemachus. Theodoret, a uh, church historian, tells us how Telemach- Telemachus comes from, from out of town. Uh, and he follows the throng into the stadium And he watches as these gladiators spill one another's blood for sport and for applause. And he runs, uh, jumps the the low wall and runs into the arena uh, between the fighters and pleads with them to stop. Now accounts of of what happens next differ. Uh, Some accounts say that Uh, Telemachus was stabbed with a sword. Uh, Others say that one of the gladiators uh, brought an axe down on his head. Uh, But all accounts are agreed in this, that when when Telemachus runs into the arena to stop the fighting, uh, the crowd is enraged and they begin pelting him with stones. Uh, And so uh, Telemachus has his own bloodshed for trying to end the bloodshed of others. But when Emperor Honorius heard the news, he is shocked by it. Uh, And he bans the games, and they are never to be played again. Uh, And I tell that story uh, because it's indicative of, of what we see here in these two episodes. Um... You see, we, we live in a very, uh, a re- very religiously separated day and time uh, when right, kind, of the, kind of the language of our culture understands that your religious convictions, they belong over here, uh, and there is a wall. Uh, they are part of your private life, but they are not really meant to have public impact. But what we see in the life of Telemachus and what we see... Uh, in these stories from Acts, as Paul uh, and his friends share the gospel, that their testimony to Jesus, their following of Jesus, actually has very much a public impact. It is not simply viewed as a religious novelty or as a uh, personal novelty, novelty, but rather it has impact on society as a whole. 
Uh, And so uh, the theme that I want to unpack today is this, that Jesus changes people and then those people change the world around them. Jesus changes people and those people then change the world around them. Some in big ways and some in small, very ordinary ways. Um, What we see happening in these two cities, in Thessalonica and in Ephesus, right? And and really the the verses that I want us to focus on are in Acts 17. Uh, You see here the the charge that is leveled against Paul uh, and the other Christians. Look at Acts 17. Uh, the Jews are jealous in verse 5, and they, they uh, ironically, they go ally themselves with people that they would never have shared a table with, uh, Gentile, wicked Gentiles who would kind of loaf around the marketplace, rabble, right? And they stir up this mob. But their charge is very interesting. Uh, when they're unable to find Paul and Silas, they drag some other Christians in front of the, the city leaders. And listen to this charge. These men, this is in verse 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They don't mean that positively. That's not a compliment. When they say that these men have turned the world upside down, what they are saying is they are overturning our lives. They are disturbing the peace. And in Rome... Like many Western societies uh, following it, including the United States, that is a serious charge. That's a big deal. You did not want to be a disturber of the peace. And then they go a little bit further. They say, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And so it's that theme, it's that idea that I want to look at this morning, that charge. These Christians have turned the world upside down. They're they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Uh, A very similar thing happens in Ephesus, right? As the Christians stop worshiping Artemis. So so, uh, the temple to Artemis was known as one of the uh, wonders of the ancient world. If If you had been to Ephesus or you had heard about Ephesus, you knew about the temple to Artemis. And yet... So many people had begun following Jesus and stopped worshiping Artemis that the, the silversmiths union, the local, the local 101, had to get together and have a meeting and say, they are threatening our livelihood. We got to do something about this, right? They are messing with our way of life. It's a similar charge. And I want you to notice something in both of those charges. There is falsehood. And there is truth. Right? When, think about it, right? When they say the, these men have turned the world upside down, they act against Caesar, they say there's another King Jesus. Are those charges true? Are these, are these Christians doing something illegal? Are they destabilizing the social order? Well, the answer to that is no, they're not. But there's a, on the other hand, there's a sense in which that charge is true. That while they're not doing anything illegal, their belief in Jesus does challenge the status quo. It challenges the status quo because they belong to a different kingdom. And they belong to a different king. 
right? Through the gospel, God creates a new people, a new tribe who follow a different king and belong to a different kingdom. And these people, these Jesus people, simply by patterning their lives after Jesus, undermine the normal way of doing business. They undermine the status quo of culture. So I want to look at this under two headings this morning. First, why Christianity isn't a threat. Where are they wrong on this charge? That these people are troublemakers. But then I also want to look at why Christianity is a threat and what it's a threat to. So let's talk first about why Christianity isn't a threat. Right? First, we should simply say that these Christians here in the story, these stories aren't doing anything illegal. Right? In fact, oddly enough, it's their opponents who are causing the social unrest. Uh, to riot uh, in Rome and the Roman Empire to cause social upheaval was against the law. As the, you saw there, the, the city clerk of Ephesus says that. Right? We are in danger of, of causing a commotion. Right? We could bring down uh, the, the, the law on our heads. So you all need to go home. These men haven't done anything wrong. Right? In each of these cases, in Thessalonica and in Ephesus, and we saw it last week in Philippi, in each of these cases, it's the opponents of the gospel who disturb the peace, not those who believe the gospel. And then second, I want you to notice something else, that the words on the street and the motives in the heart are two different things. Did you catch that? The words on the street and the motives in the heart of the opponents are two different things. Look at, look at Thessalonica, right? The Jews are jealous. Uh, they see Gentiles being welcomed into God's family, into God's people, and it angers them, right? It threatens their ethnic identities. It appeals to their ethnic prejudice. And so what do they do? They, they go and they get some Gentile rabble-rousers and stir up a mob and bring, Paul, or, or bring, uh, bring the Christians to the, to the square. All right? But notice, look at the reasons they give. They don't say, we're Jews and we don't like Gentiles. So we think you should kick these men out of town. No, what language do they use? They use the language of Roman patriotism. They charge the Christians with being traitors to Caesar. Right? Their words are different than their motives. They lack integrity. They are inconsistent. Because they know their motive is not good enough. And so they appeal to something that the crowds would understand. And in Ephesus... The real motive is greed, just like it was in Philippi last week. The, the silversmiths and other tradesmen realize they're losing money because of people following Jesus. And so, but that's, that's not what they tell the crowd. That's not what they rush into the stadium with or the theater with, right? Because even in the ancient world, greed was not a virtue, right? People didn't like greedy people any more in uh, the first century than they like them now. Okay, Uh, so greed was was not a virtue. And so what do they say? These people are are challenging the honor of Artemis. They are they are destabilizing our society. Our way of life is being threatened. Again, their motives 
and their deeds and words are two different things. And when words and motives are two different things, we call that a lack of integrity. You're not a whole person. You're a divided person. When, uh, you're, when you believe one thing and say and do another, we call that hypocrisy. To believe one thing and do another. Hypocrites are not fully honest with themselves or others. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it actually enables us, frees us to be people of integrity. It frees us to be consistent people. How? Because it exposes our sin. Right? It brings our motives up to the surface where we have to own them and say, yes, I have ethnic prejudice and pride. I don't like people who don't share my ethnicity. Right? It, it, brings, it brings our greed up to the surface. It says, yes, I treasure money and security more than God. Right? The gospel exposes our sinfulness. And then it frees us up because it tells us that Jesus came to deal with our bad motives. Jesus came to deal with our bad hearts. Right? When you're freed up in Jesus, you can admit your pride and prejudice because God can't hold it against you. He's taking care of it in his son. And so your fellow man can't hold it against you either. And not only does Jesus pay for my sins, expose them and then pay for them, but then he gives me his Holy Spirit so that I can walk in something different, so that I can walk in newness of life, life, right? The Spirit enables me to put hypocrisy to death and to walk in integrity. And because of that, Jesus and his people are not a threat to good moral order or society. In fact, because of that, they begin to make it better. We don't have to, uh, we, are, we are not people who lack integrity. We are not hypocrites. Jesus connects uh, heart and life so that we are free. Uh, we no longer have to put on a mask. So that's why Christianity isn't a threat. But why is it a threat? What do I mean by that? How does Christianity threaten the status quo? Right? I said the opponents are wrong, but also, there's also a sense in which they are right, that these Jesus people are different. They belong to a different world, a different reality. They follow a different king, not Caesar, but Jesus. And so they promote a new way of living, which is what leads people to say they are overturning the world. They're flipping things on their head. How do they do that? How do the Christians overturn the world? Well, first, they begin overturning the world by sharing the good news. Go back to Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So the very first way that Christians begin changing the world around them is by declaring good news. And notice, notice how Paul's ministry is described here. Notice what he does. 
He reasons with them. He explains it to them. And he persuades them. Right? The gospel message speaks not just to the heart, but to the head also. Uh, It is not a matter of religious preference, but of historical facts, which can be proved by pointing to documents. Things were written about for centuries and then really happened in history. And the historical and archaeological reliability of the Bible has only increased with time, right? That we can, we can explain the gospel to people. It is, it is a reasonable thing. When we talk about Jesus, when we call people to trust in Jesus, we're not asking you to check your brains at the door. We're saying, no, use your brain. Engage with the facts. Let's reason together. Right? Jesus is a real person. He really lived. He really died. He really rose again. You may remember the old song, right? You ask me how I know he lives. And he lives within my heart. That may sound really sweet, but it's not true. That's not how we know Jesus lived. We know Jesus lived, Paul says, because 500 people saw him. Over 500 people saw him alive. We have historical reliability, okay? We don't just have a warm fuzzy in the heart. The gospel is an authenticated, reliable fact. And we can reason with people to believe it and persuade people to believe it. The gospel appeals to the mind and the heart. And when we share it, God changes people. People believe and are transformed. And the second thing, the second way that they begin to overturn the world, the second way that they change the world around them, not only do they share the gospel, which leads to belief and heart change, but then their lives change as a result. And we saw that in Acts 19. Go back to Acts 19 and look at verse 18. As these Ephesians come to know Jesus, what do they do? They begin renouncing their pagan worship practices. And those who had practiced magic began burning their books, right? Now listen, this is, this is, this is a really, this, this may not seem strange to you, but it would have been radical in the first century, okay? It would have been so easy and even expected for these Ephesian believers to simply take Jesus and put him on the shelf next to Artemis. Because that's what you did in Roman culture. It was a pluralistic society, meaning the more gods you have, the better. It's like having multiple insurance policies. All right? So here, here Jesus comes along. And great. We can add Jesus to our other worship routines, and we'll be, we'll be extra covered. But that's not what happened. They bucked the trim. They rejected the status quo. They realized in hearing that message that Jesus was unique He was the true and living God, and all other gods made with hands are not gods. So they made the costly and alienating stand to reject their former worship practices to follow Jesus alone. It changed their lives. It changed their daily lives. No doubt it cost them family connections. No doubt it cost them business connections. I mean, even here, right, their changed lives then had an impact on their society because what happens? 
right? The silversmiths, see, their profits drop. Think about how crazy that is. The fact that they worship Jesus had an economic impact on their city. Has your worship of Jesus had an economic impact on anything you've done? Has it cost you anything? Has it gained you anything? Their following of Jesus affected their whole city to the point that it caused a riot. Why? Because Jesus will not share the throne with Artemis. Jesus will not share the throne with your kids. Jesus will not share the throne with your job. Jesus will not share the throne with your money. Jesus does not share the throne. And when that captivates our hearts, when that captures us, it begins to change not just our daily lives, but also the society in which we live. You see, Jesus is infinitely good and infinitely worthy. We're not just asking people to replace, you know, one, one thing for another. We're asking people to replace something empty, something false, with something true, something infinitely better, right? Because Jesus is infinitely worthy and infinitely good, that means he will not leave you alone. He won't leave your prejudices untouched. He will confront the idols of your heart. But he does so to give you something better. Himself. You'll change hobbies tomorrow. Your children, they're going to disappoint you. Your political aspirations are definitely going to disappoint you. Right? But Jesus never disappoints. We worship a greater king, and that king is not content to allow our hearts to be filled with idols. He will purge the temple until it is clean, and that is a good thing. So what does that look like? What does it look like for us maybe to begin seeing the world around us change? Let me give you some examples from history. In most Roman cities, uh, if you had an unwanted baby, deformed, disabled, maybe you had too many kids at home already, then you would just go, and when when she was born, you would then go throw her in the dump. Most cities had a, a, a dump just outside the city gates, and... You would throw her in the dump and she would die to exposure. And it was the Christians who would go to the dump and they would take these children. And if, they were, if they'd already died, they would bury them. And if they were still alive, they would adopt them at cost to themselves. That's our heritage. Uh, when plagues would hit, as they do, as they have throughout history and even today, When plagues would hit an area, it was the Christians who remained behind in the cities to care for the sick and dying, again, at cost to themselves. They might, they risked their own lives in the process. Uh, the, The Roman Emperor Julian wrote in the 4th century, lamenting the fact that Christianity uh, was on the rise and uh, paganism, the Roman gods, the worship of the emperor, they were all in decline. And he says, this is why. He says, the Christian faith has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal 
that the godless Galileans, how they talked about the Christians then, it is a scandal that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Uh, check out Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, how Christianity changed the Roman Empire uh, for more of these. Right. Over the millennia, hospitals, orphanage built by Christians. Right. It was it was Puritans uh, in England and in Scotland who advocated education and higher education for the masses, seeking to establish a school for every County under the governance of the church where the son of the duke and the son of the shepherd would sit on the same bench. Does that sound familiar? What we know as public education initially was advocated by Christians under the, under the guise of the church, under the authority of the church. It was Christians like William Wilberforce working in parliament that brought slavery to an end in Great Britain without a civil war. Now, all of those are, are the big examples, the really heroic examples. And uh, maybe you probably think, I'm no William Wilberforce. What does it look like for me to change the world? You're saying I've got to move to India. I need to fight the sex trade to, to turn the world upside down. Maybe. Or it could be a whole lot more ordinary than that. How about we begin by being guided by God's word and prayer? Let me ask you a question. Do you listen to radio and TV personalities more than you pray and read the Bible? If that's true, then you probably listen more to the spirit of our culture and the spirit of our age than to the Holy Spirit. So maybe it simply begins there. Counterculturally saying, no, I'm going to listen to God and see what his spirit has to say. Something else. Regular worship attendance. Right? Could anything be more countercultural in our age than setting aside one day in seven to rest and worship God with his people? Again, that's not hard. And not because it's convenient, but because it's necessary and good and we need it, right? And that's not a hard thing for us to do, but absolutely challenging to the status quo of our culture. Again, that says religion belongs in this little sphere over here. And, you know, you practice it as you have opportunity and convenience to do so. No, it, it fills all the spheres. Hospitality. What if we had less faceless culture warriors cruising the internet, less people constantly complaining about how things aren't as they used to be, and instead we just invited our neighbors over for a simple meal. In fact, we just had lots of people over for meals in our homes. Right? What if we walked around our neighborhoods, if, you, if you've got one, to increase visibility so that your neighbors would see you, so that by chance you might catch somebody outside, meet someone you didn't know, and got to know them? Right? Jesus' is the second greatest command, love your neighbor as yourself. Most of us aren't there. But that would be a radically ordinary way to change the world around you. Care for vulnerable people, elderly, poor, foster children. Right? 
something that Christians have done for a very long time. Not everyone is called or capable of all of these things, but if you are in Christ, you should at least ask the question, what do I need to say no to so that I can say yes to something better? What do I need to say no to? Right? Because what's, what's the number one reason we give for, really get, for getting engaged, for not being engaged in people's lives? Time. I just don't have the time. It may be, friend, that you need to say no to something so that you can say yes to something better. Because, again, that's what Jesus offers the world. How might you follow him into it and turn it upside down? Let's pray. Father, your word, uh, you give it to teach uh, and rebuke and exhort and correct God, I pray that, uh, that we would not hear these things as a cumbersome law, uh, but that we would hear them as the fruit of the gospel of grace. God, that you have liberated us from our idols so that we can love and serve those around us. I pray that you would inspire us to that end. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.